It's a beautiful example of cinema à clef, done with little blustery sentimentality and a surfeit of grace notes. David Fear of Rolling Stone talking about our feature film. That movie is called Minari, and it is one of the best pictures of the year. Glad I finally saw it. It would obviously change my top 10, but we're now in February, so what the hell? I'll count it as a 2021 movie, even though it's going to be a 2020 release, and will be very much a part of the 2020 awards season. Great to have you with us, as always, here on Cinephile. Not only Minari, though, but speaking of the nominations, SAG Award nominations, the Golden Globe nominations, a lot to chew on, some surprises and lots of takeaways from all of those. Plus, the great Christopher Plummer passes away, a wonderful Canadian actor. In honor of him, we'll do a Mount Rushmore of Christopher Plummer performances. And bad news continues for Army Hammer. All that, plus special guest, writer-director Joseph Mensch. He's got a new movie called Payback. It's available on demand, and we're going to talk to him about that. As always, please go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Appreciate all the support you're giving to Cinephile. That's how we, we keep this thing rolling, so please do Leave us a review and a ranking. I rank my movies out of Forming Beliefs. Please rank us out of five stars. And as I said, that's going to be always very much appreciated. Uh, from Meh Meh. Little Things Review was awesome. I liked the movie as well. The Jared Leto piece was hilarious. I now try to picture him in normal everyday settings. Bowling on Friday. Game night on Saturday. Church on Sunday. Yeah, he's a weirdo. The lighting story is funny. I also had a couple of texts about that, Joe. Your, your uh, Jared Leto lighting story was the best highlight of last week's Cinephile. Oh, it it was so surreal and weird, but also being in the room, just reassuring too, because I really felt like he got this, you know what I mean? I was like, you know what? He has worked in lighting before, so you know what? This is going to look great, you know? <laughs> so good. Mark Simon just thrilled he used to work at Entertainment Weekly. I said, oh yeah, yeah, Joe's an EW alumni. That's what we got. We'll get some EW stories in here. We, Kristen Baldwin we've had, uh, obviously on the podcast before. She's terrific, so... Uh, Jared Leto's story. We'll keep them coming. Leto, by the way, I did not think he'd get nominated. We'll get to the nominations in a second. He's up for a Globe and a SAG uh, for Best Supporting Actor for The Little Things. But let's get to a film which also did really well, and I'm so glad I finally saw it. A tender and sweeping story about what roots us, Minari follows a Korean-American family that moves to a tiny Arkansas farm in search of their own American dream. The family home changes completely with the arrival of their sly, foul-mouthed, but incredibly loving grandmother. Amidst the instability and challenges of this new life in the rugged Ozarks, Minari shows the undeniable resilience of family and what really makes a home. If I had my druthers, this would be right up there with me as far as the best pictures of 2020, as I said off the top. I, I, Sound of Metal is my favorite film, but Minari, I could argue, is number two. And then we've got The Climb and, and Pieces of a Woman and Nomadland and all the rest of it. But there's a reason why there's been so much buzz about this movie. And right now it's on the upswing because it is exactly what that review says. It's about family. And no matter where we come from, we've all got a family and we can all relate to challenges like these. The story opens fairly straightforward. Stephen Yoon, who's an actor I've seen before in the movie Burning, uh, he plays Jacob, who's the lead character. It's about him and his wife, uh, Noel Cho. She plays Anne. And um, clearly they've got some friction. As the story says, they've moved to the middle of nowhere. They're starting a farm. And right out of the gates, they have a terrible fight in which she's accusing him of being selfish and that you know all the money's gone towards his parents. And he's trying to say he's doing the best he can. He's working as hard as he can. What do you think? He wants to be a failure, that kind of thing. And in a really cool scene, the two kids make paper airplanes. And on the airplanes, they write, please don't fight. We love you. And it's that kind of a movie. Like immediately it's hitting you with the, with the heartstrings. And it's really a sweet, tender story. But it's done so without being overly sentimental. I remember when I think of a movie like Minari, what one of my teachers told me way back in school, 
And it's a common adage that when you're writing something, you know, the more you make it specific, the more you make it universal. Meaning, you know, if you're writing a story which is trying to appeal to lots of different people, but it really has no home, then it's not going to be good. So, for example, my man Joe, uh, you know, Puerto Rican mother, if he's going to write a story about his Puerto Rican heritage, he's going to talk about the smells and the aromas and the food and the culture and the language and the passions and all the rest of it. It's not just going to be these, you know, broad stereotypes of what, you know, Puerto Rican life must be like. Similarly, for myself, being the son of immigrants, my family emigrated from Pakistan. You know, my parents settled in Toronto in 1972. I was born in 78. So if I'm going to do a story about their upbringing, it's going to be very specific. Again, the language and the food and the culture and the customs and all the rest of it. And I think what Minari clearly does well is Lee Isaac Chung, who is the writer and director, is drawing on his own life. And I don't think it's autobiographical. You always hear that with filmmakers. They go, well, it's not completely autobiographical. It has the general tone of what I was going through, but we didn't have all these moments in our life beat by beat. You know, when Scorsese made Mean Streets, he goes, yeah, listen, I grew up in Little Italy. I grew up around a criminal element, but there's not every aspect of that movie is me. It's a semi-autobiographical movie. And similarly with Minari, it's got elements that are clearly lived in and clearly based on truth. And I'm sure there's times that Lee Isaac Chung says, listen, I'm trying to make a story. Let's do something different. For example, Will Patton is in the movie. He plays uh, you know, a devout Christian who ends up helping them on the farm, comes to the house one day. He's speaking in tongues, not sure what to take from him. Like, I don't know if that character actually existed, but he's an interesting character and obviously a name actor. The, as the review mentioned there, the, the, the scene stealer here is the grandmother. Absolutely phenomenal. And when the Golden Globe nominations came out, my friend Claire Atkins texted me and said, oh my God, I can't believe they ignored her. But thankfully, she got a SAG nomination. If there's any justice, she's not only going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but win an Academy Award. The actress of whom I'm referring to is Yu Jung Yoon. I just read an article about her on The Hollywood Reporter. She's 73 years of age. She has limited English. Somebody asked her about making you know, more American movies. She says, well, I hope so. I mean, I don't speak much English, but Lee Isaac called me and did the role. The movie, as it starts at the first 30 minutes, you kind of have a familiar rhythm to it. Mother and father... Obviously discordant, uh, kids assimilating to American life, fathers working on the farm, and then in comes grandma, and she's hilarious. She loves wrestling. Uh, she, one of the funniest things in the movie is you're watching wrestling. She's a little foul mouth. She gets mad at her grandson. Her grandson gets revenge on her by making her drink pee, his pee, by putting it in her coffee. Um, they've got these really funny moments that go back and forth. And again, I don't have these stories of my grandmother on my dad's side. My, my dad's uh, mom passed away when he was two years old. Uh, on my mom's side, my grandma passed away when I was seven. I barely knew her. But I, all of us can relate to someone in their family like this grandma, character, rascally, but also with a good heart. And there's some really tender moments with her. And God, I wish the whole movie was about her. Like, I, I watched Minari. I was incredibly moved by it. And I said, God, I'd love to see a spinoff of just the grandma. Just like how they're doing with The Sopranos right now. The Many Saints of Newark is a prequel. Well, I want to see a prequel to Minari when this grandma was first uh, living her life because she's such an indelible character. And the story never hits a false note. It's always about finding the right path. There's some real sadness in the story. And, you know, on a personal level, I could relate to it again. My parents being immigrants, but also, I mean, my dad was a computer programmer. My mom worked a variety of different jobs. Eventually, they cobbled up to enough money. They said, let's own a gas station. All right, so independent business, just like this guy's doing, working on the farm. You know, some days are good, some days are bad, but you're self-reliant. You know, it's the immigrant dream. We have our own business and... Literally, my dad didn't give up his computer programmer job. He'd work 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., come home. He'd work the store 5 till 10, come upstairs, have something to eat, and go to bed. And my mom manned the store from 9 to 5. My brother went and I went to school, and 
And that was just the life. And on the weekends, my dad would work, you know, nine to five. He'd have maybe hire like one or two employees to work at night. And that was our life. Like it constantly revolves around the work, but it doesn't mean like you're a workaholic. You're just, you're trying to better your life for your family. And, and we still had great moments as a family, you know, an occasional vacation to see other family, but, but it really was a hardworking life for my parents. And what I always try to tell people is that, you know, you learn so much from your parents because those ideals, they have that work ethic, it's passed on to you. And so in seeing Minari, a story about a Korean American family in the Ozarks, I saw the story of my own parents who uh, obviously uh, are not Korean American nor living in the Ozarks. But I think any story to make it universal, you make it specific. And a story like this is very powerful and particularly the climax, I did not see coming. I thought I had an idea where the story was going. And like I said, I was incredibly moved with the way the story ended. In terms of the directorial style by Lee Isaac Chung, I hope he gets nominated because, again, it's not flashy directing. It's a very observant. It's very naturalistic. It reminded me of some of the great films from Yasujiro Ozu, the great Japanese filmmaker. Tokyo Story is one of my favorite movies. Again, gentle storytelling. The camera is not flashy. Uh, it's almost an x-ray machine, right? It's allowing you to, to kind of probe these inner lives and see what's happening at stake. And and Stephen Yeun, the fact he gets nominated for Best Actor of the SAGs is another good reason because he's, again, a subtle performance that too often does not get recognized by major awards. But this is a film that won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. That's the equivalent of Best Picture. We had to wait a year to see it. It's got a real strong imprint behind it, Plan B. If you know Plan B, you know the name Jeremy Kleiner, the producer. You know Brad Pitt's involved. As soon as it got to the credits, I said, okay. Hey, you know what? Last year, nobody saw this Korean American movie called, or excuse me, Korean movie called Parasite win Best Picture. How about this year, a Korean American movie called Minari ends up being a real surprise and upsetting the apple cart. Don't know if it'll happen, but I think it's got a good chance of really making a lot of noise at the Oscars and awards buzz. And more importantly, if you see it, whenever you see it, I'd be stunned if you didn't find this movie very graceful and very powerful. Alison Wilmore of New York Magazine slash Vulture says, Chung is a patient filmmaker who works in small sequences that accrue imperceptibly into something grander. Great point. Small moments ends up having a big emotional impact. And Carlos Aguilar of The Rap, Count Minari among the very best movies of 2020 already for all its endearing cheekiness and affecting virtues, the greatest among them being honoring human resilience. Joe? And then I was really curious to get your, your take uh, on this movie, considering your upbringing and your experiences. Having listened to you describe it now, how would you compare this movie to a movie like The Farewell, which also kind of seems to be, with Aquafina, which kind of seems to be about, you know, first generation dealing with the influences of the old country, but also trying to acclimate to American life. How, how would you compare the two? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Joe. So I thought there would be a lot more of that. Like, hey, going to school and, uh, you know, learning baseball or football and, uh, you know, eating hot dogs and burgers rather than Korean food. Like, I thought it would go in that direction, but it actually didn't. It was more focused on the family, which I appreciate. And, and The Farewell is a really good movie. And I, again, a different side of, of Asian American life in that, which I also did not realize, is that, you know, in this case, someone's dying, their grandmother and Aquafina and the family collude together. Hey, don't tell her what's happening because it's going to be too destructive. Like in, in Asian lifestyle, you just, you'd rather be deceptive and lie to the person, say, oh, everything's fine. And they, they, they don't even tell her she's sick. They're like, no, you're totally good. We're having a wedding. Instead, it's like a farewell to her, which is what the story's about. So 
Uh, I think they're both really good companion pieces, Joe. I think if I watched both together, I'd say, okay, one is more about Asian lifestyle, the other one's more about Asian American lifestyle. But in the case of Minari, I mean, I've seen immigrant stories that they do that. You know, hey, why do you talk like that? Why is your dad have an accent? This kind of stuff. I thought it would go in that direction. It didn't, which I, I really appreciate it. For an immigrant story, it went in detours that I wasn't expecting. That sounds amazing. I wonder how it'll compete against Nomadland, but I'm also curious about the uh, the score of the movie because I found out earlier today that the, the guy who did the score is the same person who did it for The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Nice. And so does it have a similar vibe to that? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that now. I mean, as you and I both know, we both loved Last Black Man in San Francisco. I had Joe Talbot, the director, on the podcast. Great guy. Uh, I'd have to go back and see if there's any similarities now that you mentioned. I remembered it was very quiet and affecting, particularly like in the last five minutes or so. I really kind of noticed the score, right? It's, it's the best kind of score in that it's not drawing attention to itself, but it's still heightening emotional impact. That sounds perfect. And that sounds like what you said about the cinematography or, and the uh, directing, where it, it's not the forefront of it. It's just observational. It seems like the score kind of reflects that then. Yeah, observation is a perfect word for it. Uh, so that's Minari, Four Maple Leafs. Like I said, if I had to redo my top 10, it's probably uh, maybe number two behind Sound of Metal, maybe number three with Nomadland. I mean, it's it's outstanding. I'll, I'll put it on my list for 2021, though, since I don't want to have to redo my list because I'm lazy. But we get to the movies, which all of you are going to be talking about. And by the way, someone I know right now is thinking, well, where the hell can I watch Minari? I don't know offhand. Joe will do a quick Google search. We'll get the answer. I'm sure it's coming to one of these streaming services. I can tell you Nomadland is February 18th on Hulu, so that's coming very soon. Speaking of Nomadland, it was shut out in the SAGs as far as outstanding performance by cast and a motion picture is concerned. Does that mean if you don't get nominated for Best Cast, you don't win Best Picture? No. Does it hurt? Yes. Because there's other performances besides Francis McDormand, my man David Strathairn notably. So I would have liked to have seen it nominated for Outstanding Performance by Cast, but I believe Green Book recently was not nominated for Best Performance by Cast in a Motion Picture and still won Best Picture. So there are movies that have done so. But here are the nominees. Defy Bloods, this was great news because the movie was completely shut out by the Golden Globes. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, not surprising. Bozeman and um, obviously Viola Davis. Minari, great it's up for Best Picture by a cast in a motion picture. One Night Miami, you knew that was coming. That's a movie that's built upon their performances. And The Trial of the Chicago 7. So we might have a real two-horse race here. I think Nomadland is the favorite to win Best Picture, but watch out for The Trial of the Chicago 7. The Academy loves Aaron Sorkin. It's got a ton of actors in it. It's a real actor piece. Mark Rylance, Michael Keaton, Sasha Baron Cohen might win an Oscar. Eddie Redmayne, it's about what? It's about what we're dealing with today. Social justice, freedom of speech. I wouldn't be surprised Trial of Chicago 7 ends up winning Best Picture at the Oscars. So it's got some real heat with it right now. Female actor in a leading role. There's four that are locks. Carrie Mulligan, Promising Young Woman. Frances McDormand for Nomadland. Vanessa Kirby, Pieces of Omen. Viola Davis, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And then you have the fifth slot. The fifth slot, absolutely egregious by the SAGs. Just awful. Amy Adams for Hailbilly Elegy. One of the worst performances and one of the worst movies of the year. Completely overacting. Let's just pray the Oscars don't make the same mistake. Best actor in a leading role. My man Riz Ahmed. Should win best actor. Probably not going to. He's probably going to go to Chadwick Boseman, who's nominated for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Can't wait to watch Anthony Hopkins in The Father. Maybe he's got a chance of winning best actor. Hasn't won since Silence of the Lambs. I look forward to seeing The Father. Gary Oldman for Mank and Steven Yeun for Minari. Love seeing Yoon get recognized. Female actor in a supporting role. The one that I love most here, Maria Bakalova for Borat's subsequent movie film. How great would this be? Oscar nomination and a win. Would, I would just lose my mind. 
Olivia Coleman for The Father. Can't wait. Yun Yu Jung for Minari. Again, awesome seeing her nominated. I'd actually lose my mind if she won too. So honestly, Bakalova or Yu Yun Jung. And Helena Zengel for News of the World. She plays the 12-year-old. She's the German actress uh, who's the accomplice with Tom Hanks. Surprise nomination, but it's nice to see. She's very good in the movie. The worst nomination here. Maybe the worst nomination of all, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. Just drowning in prosthetics and terrible makeup. Just an awful nomination. The fact that she, and now it looks like it might be a two-horse race. It might be Coleman versus Close, right? Remember, Coleman beat her, and now Close might get revenge. How disgusting is that for Hillbilly Elegy? I mean, Glenn Close, great actress. Could get her eighth nomination. She's going to win for that movie. Oh, yeah. Outstanding performance by male actor in a supporting role. Chadwick Boseman to Five Bloods. Good chance of being a double nominee here, actor in supporting. Sasha Baron Cohen, Trial of Chicago 7. You bet your butt he's going to get nominated. A movie that I can't wait to see, I'm reviewing next week on Cinephile, Judas and the Black Messiah. It comes to HBO Max February 12th. Daniel Kaluuya is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Stripper of the Black Panthers. Apparently he's marvelous. Jared Leto, the surprise nominee for The Little Things. Great with lighting. He is certainly the best part of The Little Things. He's funny. He's creepy. I don't think it's worthy of a nomination. I think he's a creep and a weirdo, but hey, congrats. And the one that I'm really hoping for, I want him to win, and I think he's a slight favorite, Leslie Odom Jr., magnetic, charismatic performance of Sam Cooke for one night in Miami. Quickly with the TV stuff, great to see Better Call Saul was nominated Best Performance by an Ensemble in a Drama Series. As far as comedy series, I know a lot of people love Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is nominated along with Dead to Me and Schitt's Creek. Uh, disappointing to see as far as the female actors are concerned. Uh, just, I mean, every single time this keeps happening. I just, I don't understand why we can't see Ray Seahorn get nominated, but this is the world we live in here. Um, female actor in a drama series. The nominees are Gillian Anderson, Olivia Coleman, Emma Corrin, three for The Crown. Wow. And Julia Garner and Laura Linney for Ozark. I'm like, are you kidding? How can we not get Ray Seahorn in here for... Ah, for Better Call Saul. Best Actor in a Drama Series, though, thankfully, Bob Odenkirk was nominated for Better Call Saul, so that's good news there. Female Actor in a Comedy Series, you got a couple of Schitt's Creeks, you got our girl Linda Cardellini, you got Applegate, Kaylee Cuoco, maybe making some noise. How about this category? Male Actor in a TV Movie or Miniseries. Three that are heavyweights. Mark Ruffalo, for I know this much is true, he already won the Emmy, double role. Hugh Grant, The Undoing, incredible. And the guy that I love more than anybody, Ethan Hawke for The Good Lord Bird. That's a loaded category for those three nominees as well. So uh, one last one, a staying performance by a male actor in a comedy series. Sudeikis with a lot of love for Ted Lasso. I think it's probably going to be Schitt's Creek, Dan Levy or Gene Levy, but I'm thrilled for my man Rami. He gets nominated once again. Lone nomination there for Rami is Rami Youssef is up for best actor in that category. Joe, your thoughts on the SAGs before we transition to the Globes? I'm interested about the outstanding performance by a female actor in a comedy series because you get two Linda Cardellini and Christina Applegate for Dead to Me and Annie Murphy and Catherine O'Hara for Schitt's Creek. Could Kaylee Cuoco pull one out, sneak one out for The Flight Attendant? I think that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, who knows? Have you seen The Flight Attendant, Joe? No, I haven't, but it's a show that keeps getting more and more buzz. I keep hearing more and more word of mouth about it. Same with Ted Lasso, too. I think Ted Lasso could become a show that's like Schitt's Creek that's kind of flying under the radar but then slowly mounts this campaign. I've talked to so many people who tell me that not only is it a good show, but it's a heartfelt, funny, just wonderful, wonderful comedy series. So I'm interested to check that out now. Yeah, at some point we'll get Joe's guest review of Ted Lasso. Uh, let's do the Golden Globe Award nominations. 
Um, listen, Netflix dominated. 42 total nominations for its movies and shows. Amazon, 10 nominations. Hulu, also 10 nominations. We'll go through these. Best TV series, movie or com- musical or comedy. Again, Ted Lasso, great to see that. Flight attendant, uh, Schitt's Creek, expected favorite. Best actor in a TV series drama. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, love seeing that. Better Call Saul. But the big one here is my man Al Pacino, my favorite actor, 80 years old. Hunters was disappointing, but Al's nominated. This is a classic Golden Globes move. Hey, what the hell? We want the stars here. Let's nominate Al Pacino for best actor. If he wins, I wouldn't be shocked. He shouldn't win, but he's my favorite actor. So good for Al. I love seeing him getting nominated for Hunters up against Odenkirk, uh, Bateman, and all the rest of it. Probably maybe Josh O'Connor might win for The Crown. People just love The Crown, don't they? Um, best director, motion picture. This is big news here. Okay, three female nominees. I was expecting Chloe Jaw for Nomadland. I was fairly confident Regina King, One Night Miami. I did not think Emerald Fennel would crash the party for Promising Young Woman. That's my biggest takeaway from the Globes. Make way for Promising Young Woman. Sam Surface fired up. The movie got nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress. Only Actress was the one that was a lock. So that is great news for Emerald Fennel and the movie. Uh, the male nominees, by the way, David Fincher, who's got a good chance with Mank, and Aaron Sorkin, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Again, love seeing Maria Bakalova nominated. Then you get a bunch that nobody's seen, including Michelle Pfeiffer and French Exit. That movie's coming out in a couple weeks. I look forward to that. Again, for those who are unaware, the uninitiated, Golden Globes has two categories, musical or comedy or drama. So normally for actress and actor, musical or comedy rarely get nominated. Best actor in a motion picture drama, great news here. Riz Ahmed, best actor, great. Chadwick Boseman, probably going to win. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Hopkins for The Father. Oldman for Mank. Instead of Stephen Yoon for Minari, which I want to see, they went with Tahar Rahim for The Mauritanian. So this is interesting. The Globes, obviously, uh, the foreign press, Hollywood foreign press. This is a story about Guantanamo Bay, a guy who was detained. Movie looks terrific. And not only did Tahar Rahim get nominated for Best Actor, but also Jodie Foster, who plays his lawyer in the movie. So that came out of nowhere. I am looking forward to seeing The Mauritanian. I don't know if that will translate to the Oscars, but... Good to see uh, something different there as far as the nominees were concerned. Again, TV series drama, ridiculous that Better Call Saul was ignored. Best performance by an actress in a TV series, ridiculous that Ray Seahorn was ignored. Uh, Might be Olivia Colman for The Crown, maybe Laura Linney for Ozark, who knows. Performance by an actor in a limited series, again, loaded category. This is even more loaded than the SAGs. Ready for this? Ruffalo won the Emmy. I know this much is true. My main man, Ethan Hawke, the good Lord Bird. Hugh Grant, Performance of a Lifetime of the Undoing. Then you got Jeff Daniels in the Comey Rule. Again, big name. And Brian Cranston for your honor. I mean, I pay 200 bucks a month for cable, so I'm not getting Showtime. It's another 10 bucks. But I can't wait to watch Your Honor. I'm waiting for screeners of Your Honor so I can just binge watch 10 episodes of Cranston, who's unbelievable. I just listened to him on Conan O'Brien's podcast. The guy's hilarious. Think of that category. Cranston, Daniels, Grant, Ethan Hawke, Ruffalo. Joe, that's about as much star power as it gets. Yeah, to your point, you know, classic Golden Globes move. They love their stars coming there. I, I wonder. I haven't seen Your Honor uh, either, and Brian Cranston. I, I it, it'll be tough. I think Mark Ruffalo could edge it out still, but it'll be tough. Yeah, Ruffalo did win the Emmy, so it's important to note. Now, actor in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. These rarely translate to an Academy Award nomination. The most laughable nomination: Lin Manuel Miranda for Hamilton. I'm not trying to upset. Joe, and all the fine Puerto Ricans listening, and anyone who loves Hamilton. Obviously, the guy's a genius. 
But like literally, they, they just filmed the show and put it in like on on freaking Disney Plus. Like what? Like how is that worthy of a Best Actor nomination? Like come on, has he been getting awards for like years now? Like what? How many more awards can you get for Hamilton? Like dude, I think he's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's definitely won a Grammy. I'm sure he's won Tony Awards up the Wazoo, which is the most important one. Is at least in the theater. Like he's gonna win every single award possible for Hamilton. He's gonna win a Tony, an Emmy, an Oscar. It's insane. Anyways, he's up for Best Actor. Good for him. The Prom is apparently awful. James Corden is up for Best Actor. The nomination that I loved was Sasha Baron Cohen for Borat Subsequent. Excuse me, Borat Subsequent Movie Film. Uh, I want to get around to seeing Deb Patel at some point. The Personal History of David Copperfield, and the one that I really want to see win: Andy Samberg for Palm Springs. Palm Springs was in my top ten of the year. I love the fact that Samberg got nominated. Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama. Again, there's four, and then there's a surprise. Here's the four you can count on. McDormand, Vanessa Kirby, Carrie Mulligan, Viola Davis. The fifth slot here going to Andre Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday. I look forward to that movie. That's uh, from Lee Daniels. Remember, Lee Daniels did The Butler, uh, Precious. So Andre Day could get some love there playing uh, an icon in Billie Holiday. Best motion picture drama, The Father, Mank. Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Big takeaway. Again, Promising Young Woman, Crash in the Party, Best Picture of the Drama, could be a two-horse race. Nomadland, Trial of the Chicago 7. But don't forget about Mank. Mank got six nominations. Of course, movie people love movies about movies. If Fincher wins Best Director, if Mank wins Best Picture here, maybe Mank will win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Again, these feel like locks now. Sasha Baron Cohen's going to get nominated for The Trial of Chicago 7. Daniel Kaluuya is going to get nominated for Judas and the Black Messiah. Leslie Odom Jr., I hope will win, playing Sam Cooke, One Night Miami. Jared Leto is up for the little things. And here's the shot that you go, come on, again, this is so Globes. Just nominate a star. I reviewed on the rocks. It's good. It's not great. It's not award-worthy. But Bill Murray is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. What the hell? Congrats, Bill. Enjoy it. Hopefully we'll see at the Oscar, excuse me, the Globes having some funny stories. Best Original Score, I love Soul. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, John Batiste. If it's not Soul, I'm going to be furious. I know Adam Amin's going to say Tenet, Ludwig Gorenson. Yeah, it's fine. It ain't Soul, okay? Reznor, Ross, Batiste. That is your heavyweights there. Also, Mank, by the way, Reznor, Atticus Ross. They're double nominees. That's how good these guys are. James Newton Howard is also up for News of the World. Did like that score. And Alexander Desplat for The Midnight Sky did not watch it. George Clooney film. I heard it was absolutely terrible. Uh, actress in a TV series, musical or comedy, Catherine O'Hara, let's go. Schitt's Creek, maybe Kelly Cuoco for The Flight Attendant. Limited series or motion picture, I'm hoping for The Undoing, HBO, but probably going to be small acts, Amazon Studios. Best performance by an actress, supporting role, limited series. Love seeing Donald Sutherland get nominated for The Undoing, but again, probably going to be Schitt's Creek, Dan Levy, or it could be uh, John Boyega for small acts. Best motion picture, musical or comedy, the Prom is up for it. I don't know anyone who says it was good. Music, I don't know anyone who's actually seen it. Hamilton, again, this is a joke, but fine. The two that I really like seeing, Palm Springs and Borat, are both up for Best Picture. That's awesome. Actress in a Supporting Role. I've already slammed Glenn Close being up for Hillbilly Elegy at the Sags. Inexplicably, she's also up for a Globe. Uh, the race then becomes Olivia Coleman, Amanda Seyfried for Mank. She was actually the favorite at one point. We'll see if she wins. Helena Zengel, the 12-year-old German from News of the World. So that's good news for her. And the surprise, as I mentioned earlier, Jodie Foster for The Mauritanian. Best Motion Picture Foreign Language Film, Minari, because of these stupid rules, is up for foreign film, even though it's not a foreign film. It's an American movie with people speaking Korean. I mean, that's like, you know, if I made, 
I don't know, if I made an American movie, but they're all speaking Spanish, well, it's still an American movie. But stupidly, the globe rules are, no, we count it as a foreign film because they're speaking a foreign language for much of the movie. Whatever. Minari should win Best Picture Foreign Language. It will not get nominated for that category for the uh, Oscars. I think another round might win. Probably a pretty, pretty good Danish movie. Pretty funny. I cannot wait to see it at some point. Uh, best Screenplay for all the writers out there. Emerald Fennel, again, double nominee, not only director, but also script for Promising Young Woman. Great, great news. Jack Fincher for Mank, which Joe mentioned he thought was so cool that David Fincher was taking on his dad's project while dad gets recognized. Sorkin, heavy favorite, Travel to Chicago 7. Florian Zeller, Christopher Hampton, again, can't wait to watch The Father. And Nomadland, Chloe Josh, she is also a double nominee. Uh, actor in a TV series, musical or comedy, again, Sudeik is probably going to win, or J- Eugene Levy, Schitt's Creek. The guy I'm really happy for, Rami Youssef. Rami gets nominated again. The lone bright spot there for um, his show. Uh, and again, supporting role, limited series. How about Gillian Anderson? What a resurgence she's had with The Crown. People love The Crown. They love her performance. And lastly, motion picture, animated uh, I think I've seen all these, actually. <laughs> With the exception of Wolfwalkers, I'm hoping it's Soul, but I also loved Onward, and I enjoyed seeing the Croods in a movie theater. Joe, your reaction to... Oh, sorry, one more one. Best original song, also really pulling for Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, the song Speak Now from One Night in Miami. I think he's got a really good chance of winning an Oscar. Go ahead, Joe. You know, I think... Uh, Delroy Del Lindo... Um, yes. Biggest snub. Sorry, Joe. I'm going to cut you off. I asked for your thoughts. You're right. Biggest snub without question. Defy Bloods ignored by the Globes and Delroy Lindo not only ignored by the Globes, but also the Sags. Go ahead. Crazy. And I also think Chadwick Boseman is now uh, officially a lock for some sort of Oscar nomination. I don't think he'll win it, uh, any of uh, supporting or best actor, but I think he's definitely a lock. Um, I've heard a lot of people saying that the show Bridgerton on Netflix was snubbed. I have not watched it, Adnan. Apparently, it's the most streamed show ever on Netflix in their history. Have you heard of it or have you seen any of it? Have heard of it. Did see an article about it being snubbed. Don't know anything about it. Uh, you're right. It got ignored by the glows, but the SAGs, they didn't get nominated for best cast. So all you Bridgerton fans, good news from the Screen Actors Guild, at least. Yeah. And also, uh, I just want to note too, the Golden Globes loves their stars. The Hollywood Foreign Press loves bringing them there. You think James Corden wouldn't have gotten the nomination that they would have somehow just shoehorned Meryl Streep in there. She did not get a nomination this year. Normally she's just thrown in. I don't I mean I don't want to demean her performances. She's there's a reason for it. But uh she wasn't nominated. So that that's one thing. And then how are you doing with Ray Seahorn being snubbed as well? Yeah, just enraged about Ray Seahorn being snubbed, but used to it at this point. I just realized they're just not going to appreciate great acting, so the hell with them. And as far as Meryl Streep's concerned, yeah, I heard the prom is terrible. I know, as you and I have discussed here in Cinefile, she raps at one point. So you're right. It's not that she's worthy of it. She's been worthy of so much in the past, but they love their stars so much. If Pacino is going to get nominated, if Jodie Foster is going to get nominated, if Bill Murray is going to get nominated, how the hell did Meryl Streep not get nominated? I agree. They, they should have found a way to, as you say, shoehorn her in because she's obviously a big star and the Globes are, are a big event. They're going to be coming up, by the way, end of February. It's uh, very quick. They nominated them early February. The awards late February. I want to say February 28th. I want to say the last Sunday of the month, something like that. No more Ricky Gervais, unfortunately. It's going to be um, Tina Fey and uh, Amy Poehler. Both funny, but come on. Gervais is incredible. All right, there's your uh, awards recap. Um, Now a little bit of entertainment news. And this is sad news involving our man Christopher Plummer. As always, I got to first off mention he's Canadian. And a proud Canadian. He was born in Toronto back on December 13th of 1929. A career in film, music, and television, and in theater. 
We all know him for the movies, and we're going to do the Mount Rushmore, but I'm telling you, growing up in Ontario, everyone said you got to go see him in Stratford. Stratford is like the equivalent of Broadway in a certain part of Ontario. Like, you go there, and they do Shakespeare and stuff in the summer, and apparently they were like, you've got to see Christopher Plummer at the Stratford Theatre Festival doing Shakespeare. It'll blow your mind. It was legendary, his work there. I wish I could have seen him. He won an Oscar finally at the age of 82, oldest actor ever to win an Academy Award, And he said to the statue, you're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? Which was a great, great line. He won for the film Beginners. He also had an Oscar nomination for the 2009 film The Last Station. Uh, Everyone always knows the one that he was most famous for, Captain Von Trapp in the hit 1965 musical, The Sound of Music. He chafed against being typecast for his famous role, but that's why he did so many other movies along the way. Uh, Two Emmy Awards as well, two Tony Awards. I mentioned the work, obviously, on stage. He died Friday morning at his home in Connecticut. Uh, I mentioned the Shakespeare stuff. Listen, he was inspired by Olivier's Henry V. That kindled a passion for him and Shakespeare went his whole life. Made his debut on Broadway in 53. Uh, Obviously, later with Sound of Music really being a big star. But he had deep... uh, Mixed feelings about it. You know, he said at one point in pictures, I was being typed as a rather uptight, romantic leading man when I wanted to do so many more interesting things and was capable of doing them. This was in 2005, he told Entertainment Weekly. Instead, I was getting these rather stiff-necked assholes to play. But I was making money and I was able to do theater. Uh, Movies a lot of people are going to know. Star Trek VI, The Insider, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and then, of course, he won that Oscar for, uh, for Beginners. He said, I guess one day when you run out of parts, there's always Methuselah. And maybe God. That's about it. The movie that I know a lot of people mentioned when they heard he died was All the Money in the World, 2017, playing J. Paul Getty. He was incredible. When Ridley Scott brought him in at the last second, Kevin Spacey replaced after issues of uh, alleged sexual misconduct. Plummer was there. And Scott said, you know who you're going to go to for the recasting if he's available. Chris was always on the list. You find that out quietly. You don't want to get around. I flew into New York. I met with Chris. He said yes, and that was it. Uh, he also was featured in Knives Out, which was just uh, two years ago, 2019, and the war film The Last Full Measure coming out in January 2020. We'll do his best movies, but Joe, 91 years of age, Christopher Plummer, a real giant. Yeah, and to have just longevity throughout his career 1953 is when he started is when he made his broadway debut color tv wasn't a thing yet that, that's insane how how far he's been um but how, how do you feel you know he was a proud canadian how, how do you feel adnan yeah i remember growing up seeing uh episodes or at least commercials for a show called counter-strike i gotta look it up i don't know how many years it actually lasted on canadian tv but it was, it was always a big deal that like you said proud canadian he wasn't one of these guys who just went to america and never came back he was always doing a lot of canadian television i mentioned the canadian stage so it's a big loss for people on both sides of the border speaking of a big loss army hammer's career ongoing dissolution call me by your name actor accused of sending a series of instagram dms outlining bizarre and abusive sexual behaviors accused by at least two former partners of similar behavior, has now reached the point that he's been dropped by his agent, WME. So he loses a movie with J-Lo. He loses his chance to make a show about the making of The Godfather. And now he doesn't have an agent. And now apparently he doesn't have a publicist. Unbelievable. He's apparently lost the services of his publicist, largely quiet about the allegations. They have gone from lurid accusations of cannibalism to the more grounded and depressing, including repeated assertions of ignoring consent with sexual partners and other abusive behaviors. We say goodbye to Christopher Plummer. We could be saying goodbye to Army Hammer's career. Coming up after the break, director Joseph Manchino talked about his new film, Payback Plus, the Mount Rushmore of Christopher Plummer movies. 
A pleasure to bring in Joseph Mensch, at jmensch on Instagram, J-M-E-N-S-C-H. His new film, Payback, is available now on VOD and digital release. Here's the synopsis. Mike Markovich, a young stockbroker at a mob-controlled Wall Street firm, is betrayed and imprisoned for six years. When he is released, his deadly quest for vengeance begins. And Joseph Mensch is the writer and co-writer and the director of this new film. Joe, how are we doing today? Uh, hi, Adnan. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, that's How good. are you? I was going to say, all things considered, doing pretty well, I think, is, is great in this uh, day and age. Uh, thanks to Sophie Tran for sending me a link. I was able to watch the film last night. I really enjoyed it. I have DirecTV as well, so I noticed that uh, it's available there right now on demand, so that's good news. Hopefully, people will see payback. You know, I first saw the story. I said, oh, okay, this looks intriguing, a thriller uh, a bit of a Wolf of Wall Street, maybe a bit of um, Wall Street itself, because it's obviously a Wall Street firm. How did you first come up with the idea? You co-wrote it with Metten Axsoy. Yes, uh, Metten was my co-writer. So the movie was inspired by a book I read, a, a kind of a memoir called Career Criminal, which is written by a guy named Gary Govich. And uh, it, it chronicles his life in the Russian mob in Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s. And part of the book focused specifically on, like, Wall Street crime, um, white-collar financial crimes, fraud, you know, credit card fraud, and obviously penny stocks were a big part of that, which we've seen in other movies. Um, but what intrigued me was the intersection of white-collar crime and actual mafia activity. Um, that is not something I had seen before. Uh, and um, and the idea of of that combination somehow stirred something in me, and I went out to Brighton Beach to, uh, to look around and did a little research, and uh, and off went. Yeah, I think that's the key is that you're able to like mend different genres, like you said. You know, there there are films of similar terrain, but this particular intersects is something that hasn't really been examined the way you did it. Uh, Toby Leonard Moore is a terrific actor. He plays Ricky Zukoff in the movie. Matt Levitt is the main character, Mike Markovich. But I wanted to ask you about Toby. Uh, I really enjoyed him in that show Daredevil. He was the right-hand man there of Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk. He's also Brian Connerty in Billions. I think he's great at playing these. And every time I see him, he's wearing a suit. So I just think he's great at playing if not white-collar criminals, but certainly guys with a bit of an edge to them who always seem to be rather dapper. Tell me about Do Toby and casting him. Oh, yeah. Toby is, uh, is one, of, that's one of my favorite performances in the movie, and Toby is an absolute pro uh, from beginning to end. And I, gotta, I, I agree with you. He looks great in a suit. It didn't occur to me, but, uh, but he does always wear a suit, it seems like. Um, in this movie, he got to actually fight someone, uh, while wearing a suit, so maybe he put it to slightly different use this time. Um, I met Toby at a poker game here in New York City, and um, we happened to be sitting next to each other at a game of Texas Hold'em, and I had seen him in billions, and uh, we sort of chatted up, and uh, and a few you know a few months later, I, I had a script and uh, I sent it to him, and he liked the idea, and I don't know. Um, Toby was one of, one, of the, one of the best parts of the movie, and uh, I'd love to work with him again. Yeah, I thought it was a really tight script. It was really well-focused, Joe. How much uh, ad-libbing did you allow on set? How much of it was actually on the page, and you and Metten tried to stick to, to what you'd written? Because as a director, obviously, you had a feel for, obviously, when you're creating scenes, how you wanted to shoot it. So how much collaboration did you allow among the actors? I always allow the actors to throw in lines as they occur to them. 
Um, I don't adhere strictly to what's on the page. I think spontaneity and a kind of a naturalism is ultimately better uh, for the movie than, you know, adhering strictly to the dialogue that's on there. So there are a few examples in the movie of lines that I, that I didn't write that the actors, that the actors came up with. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always, always looking for something different, something new, something I haven't thought of when it comes to directing. Once again, we're talking with Joseph Mensch. Payback is available now on VOD and digital release. To go into your backstory a little bit, Joe, you're born in New York City. You studied film at NYU mm-hmm. before working as a production assistant on the set of Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. As somebody who idolizes Scorsese, please tell me what that experience was like. <laughs> well, um, it was my first job in the industry. I think I was 21 or 22 at the time. And, uh, and I, was, I was a PA on that set. I was the lowest person on the totem pole <laughs> in that job. And it was basically my job to fetch coffee for people and make script copies and, you know, run, as, run any kind of errand that was needed. Uh, any PA who's done this can identify with what I'm talking about here. Um, I, got, I had a few, uh, few chances while on that set to interact with Scorsese himself. I, I think we had maybe two or three distinct conversations in the in the two months that I was a PA on that movie. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, I can tell you about one of them, which has stuck in my mind, you know, for, for the last 17 years. Um, they were shooting a shot uh, for the aviator um, that involved a really long take. Uh, it was probably a two minute long take and it snaked through Howard Hughes's editing room. Um, and it reminded me of the famous Copacabana shot in Goodfellas. Uh, probably the the best Steadicam shot ever. And I uh, I happened to be standing near Martin Scorsese, and it was it was one of those you know quiet moments between takes. And I asked him um, how many takes did it require to shoot that Copacabana shot, and he he just looked at me and he said twelve. And I said, oh that's cool. So uh, which take did you end up using? And without even hesitating, he said, number seven. And he had shot that movie, God, it had been 12 years or something since he had made that movie. And he still remembered the number of takes and the specific take that he had ended up using in the movie. And I was so uh, kind of dazzled that he had that kind of memory um, and that obsession, really, with what he was doing that he could recall such a small fact like that. That is incredibly cool. Like you said, the obsessiveness, the attention to detail, when you put your heart into it, that's why his movies can always sing. And that, that's great that he was able to tell you that you took that experience and moved forward. Soon after The Aviator, you moved to L.A. to work for another legend, producer Joel Silver, junior editor on the films House of Wax and The Reaping. What would you learn there from Joel Silver? Well, uh, I didn't actually see Joel that often, to be honest. Uh, I was, again... Uh, a kind of a production assistant in the office in, in the editing room. And my goal at that point had been to, to learn the craft of editing. I, I had almost embarked on an editing career at that point. Um, and um, my main interactions in that job, and I would say the mo- most valuable ones, were with the directors of those two movies. Um, the first was a movie called House of Wax, which was directed by Jama Colette Serra. 
And then the second one was called The Reaping, directed by Stephen Hopkins. And, and I got to kind of shadow those guys a little bit uh, during the post-production process. And I learned more, I would say, about editing and post-production during that time than I did about shooting. But um, JAMA in particular was, uh, was very supportive. I, I told him I wanted to direct. And he just, he basically insisted that I go off and shoot something. Like he said, stop thinking about it. You know, just pick up the camera, write a one minute long script and go out and shoot it and, and stop talking about it. So that's what I did. I, I wrote, I wrote a, a commercial for, um, for PlayStation 3 uh, on spec. I got some actors from an acting class I was in, and we shot it during one afternoon. And, uh, and I cut it together in about a week. And it ended up, you know, it was just a little short commercial for a, for a, a PlayStation 3 game. So that was, um, you know, that was my first tiny, tiny little victory. And I got to credit uh, JAMA specifically for encouraging that. Uh, as far as other films you made, Joe, you produced the action film Bushwick, which starred Dave Bautista, which premiered at Sundance and Cannes in 2017. Is he the most physically intimidating person you've ever been around? <laughs> you would think so, given his size, but it turns out he's a total sweetheart. Um, he's, uh, he's fun. He's funny. He's, he doesn't take himself at all seriously. And... Uh, and he's uh, just just a great guy to hang out with. Uh, there's, after you spend 30 seconds with him, he's, he's no longer intimidating. Put it that way. Yeah, after you realize he's not going to rip your head off, you go, hey, good to meet you, man. Seems like a good dude. Uh, <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, we're talking with Joseph Bench right now. His new film is called Payback. I encourage you all to check it out on demand. You also made Asher, which is a thriller with Ron Perlman. I apologize. I'm unfamiliar with it, but I remember Perlman's work, particularly in Hellboy. What's Asher all about? So Asher is the story of an aging hitman who lives in Brooklyn, and uh, he is he's assigned to one last job, and naturally that job goes wrong. In the process, he falls in love uh, with a woman named Sophie, who's played by, by uh, Famke Jansen, and she gets ensnared in the whole plot. Um, this was, uh, written by Jay Zaretsky and directed by a veteran director named, uh, Michael Caton Jones, who, uh, who directed Rob Roy and The Jackal, some other big movies. Um, and this was just another, like a tiny low budget movie that we shot over a couple of weeks here in, uh, in Brooklyn. And that was another great opportunity for me to shadow a, a veteran director, and, uh, and learn what I could from him. And that experience also prepared me uh, to shoot payback. That, that's been the key here, Joe. I just listening to your stories. You're clearly a guy who's passionate about film, who cares about it, who's diligent, but you're also picking up things left and right. Have you always been someone who, who acclimates well and is a sponge? Yes, I would say so, uh, at least since, uh, since college. <laughs> uh, after you get out of college, you realize, hopefully, uh, that you know nothing. <laughs> in college, you think you know everything. Once you get out to the real world, it becomes pretty clear that you're basically going back to school. Um, and uh, I have taken that approach to filmmaking and pretty much everything uh, since I graduated. And I, I, I grab as many opportunities, uh, opportunities as I can to meet with and talk to and learn from 
more experienced people than me. And not, that's not just in the area of directing, it's, it's in editing, it's, it's producing, it's, you know, writing the score. I, I, I sidle up next to people, I, I buy them a drink, and I try to pick their brain as much as I possibly can. And then I try to retain everything they told me, uh, which is not always easy. So, yes, that's just the way I've, I've always been. I, I'm a sponge in that respect. I think it's a good quality to have. Like you said, post-college is when you can start to dial it up. Before then, uh, you know, you're just enjoying life. Um, what do you think just yeah. about the, the state of cinema now? Listen, in the issues of payback, which I encourage everyone to see, you're just looking to get the movie out, right? You couldn't care less if it's on 300 screens or you're watching it on your iPhone. I want people to see the movie. I want there to be buzz about it, lead to the next project. But what do you think about the state of cinema right now, streaming, the influence of streaming, theaters being closed? What's your vibe on all that right now? It's clearly a movie lover like me. Yes. Well, um, I mean, look, it's, it's every filmmaker's dream to see their, their movie on the big screen. Uh, so the loss of that, especially like in the current climate is not one that I was thrilled with. Um, but obviously these, all these streaming platforms popping up provide a whole new set of, of opportunities for filmmakers, especially, uh, lower budget filmmakers fledgling filmmakers like me, um, who, as you point out, are grateful for any opportunity uh, for people to watch the movie. And you're right. If people watch it on their phones, that's, that's better to me than them not watching it all. So I, I don't know. I guess I got, I got pretty lucky with my distributor, uh, Vertical Entertainment, who, who agreed to you know, make deals with Amazon, iTunes, uh, Apple Plus, and, uh, and as you mentioned, a, a whole bunch of on-demand uh, platforms as well. I mean, my attitude is just, is, I just hope as many people watch it as possible and that the platform doesn't matter as much to me. I totally hear you, man. When you're looking to get your movie out, that's the most important thing. And it's a terrific movie. It's called Payback. It's available on demand. Uh, thanks to Sophie Tran for setting this up. And thanks to Joseph Mensch. You can find him once again on Instagram uh, at J-M-E-N-S-C-H. By the way, how many times like, do you get play on words when people like introduce you and think they're being funny and say, hey, this guy, my buddy Joe is a real Mensch? <laughs> More than you'd think. Um, yeah, it happens about, I would say, once a week. Uh, and my usual answer, my, my usual answer is, yeah, it's a name I try to live up to. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Because as I'm saying your name, I clearly am resisting the urge to do so, realizing you hear this, as you said, once a week, I would have thought once a day. So uh, you're clearly a mensch uh, the way you did this. Thanks so much, Joseph. It's my pleasure, Adnan. Good to speak to you. Rushmore. So let's get this out of the way. I, I've never seen start to finish the sound of music. I know, kill me. It's just not my thing, okay? Musicals, Julie Andrews. But how the hell are you going to do a Christopher Plummer, Mount Rushmore without including that, right? So how about that? I'm including it without even having fully seen it. <laughs> I've, I've seen snippets. What the hell? Sound of music is in. 
I could lose this job if I don't put that as one of his uh, Mount Rushmore. So that's in. Um, a movie that I absolutely love is The Insider. I've talked about it a lot. He's incredible as Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace saw the movie, hated the performance by Christopher Plummer. It did not come out well. The scene where he's talking to Pacino's character, Lowell Bergman, and talks about fame lasting 15 minutes. Uh, you know, the famous Warhol quote. He goes, no, no, that's fame. Infamy lasts a whole lifetime. It's a great, great scene. The fact that he was unwilling to bend his scruples, and who knows? Listen, Mike Wallace is going to have his own account of what happened. But in the movie, Plummer makes it look as if his ego will not allow his story to be shelved. And he is not a guy who stands up for what is important, what is right. Bergman's character, uh, Pacino's character, is the one who does. So I thought it was just a devastating portrait of a very famous TV newsman and Mike Wallace. Uh, those are two easy ones out of the gate. I, I really want to find a spot for all the money in the world. I thought he was an incredible J. Paul Getty. I mean, especially the fact he came in at the last second. The guy shows up. He was absolutely fantastic. So what the hell? Look at that in there. Danny Collins, he was great with Pacino. Small role. I'm not going to put it in there, but he was really good in Danny Collins playing Pacino's longtime agent. Uh, I want to get, you know, just another mention of another Pacino-Christopher Plummer collaboration. He's also an inside man, a beautiful mind. Those are notable but I think if I had to go with a fourth slot, I might go completely just off the radar here. I mean, listen, he was also in Malcolm X. My brother will be upset I don't mention Star Trek, but I'm going to go the way I loved as a kid, Dragnet. He played the Reverend Jonathan Weirly. How about that? I'm going to go with a comedy because he would appreciate the fact he was always typecast with The Sound of Music. You know what, Chris? I'm going to go with Dragnet. Funny movie, Dan Aykroyd, Tom Hanks. He's got a really good supporting role in that. So there's my four. All the money in the world, the sound of music, the insider, and in a shocking choice, Dragnet. I like those. I like those, Adnan. That um and now I need to watch Dragnet. I need to get <laughs> I need to get on that. Uh I'm going to go with like you I have seen the sound of music all the way through, but I haven't seen it in years. I think I was a kid the last time I actually sat down and watched it from start to finish all the way through, but I will throw that on. Um, I'm also going to throw on Knives Out. Uh, I thought that was just a great whodunit that uh, Ryan Johnson wrote. And then, you know what? I, these might be curveballs, but like you, you alluded to Malcolm X earlier, I will throw that on my list, him playing uh, Chaplain Gill, trying to convert Malcolm X to Christianity. Nice. And then I, I'm going to go with Up. I'm going to go with the 2009 yes. Pixar film Up. He plays the uh, he plays Charles Muntz, the the villain of the movie, if you will, and I mean that's just a fantastic movie. And if I can ever have an opportunity to throw it on any list, I will. So my four are Up, Knives Out, Malcolm X, and Sound of Music. I love it. I love the fact you throw in Malcolm X, and Up is quite possibly the greatest animated movie of all time. So great choices there, showing the diversity and the range of a brilliant actor in Christopher Plummer. Thanks so much for checking out Cinephile. Please do hit us up on Twitter, Cinephile Pod. Adnan Esfer, go to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Next week, um, Judas and the Black Messiah. Daniel Kaluuya is going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor. A lot of buzz for that movie. Like Keith Stanfield is in it as well. It's coming out HBO Max February 12th. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to review it for all of you. So until then, I'll see you at the movies. Thank you.